Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Even though I didn't think it was as serious as she was making it, like she was being like, to drink is to die. And I was like, that's not that's not how it is for me. I could drink tomorrow and I'd be okay. And then she's like, then why don't you? Why aren't you drinking then? And then of course I'm like crying. I'm like, I might die. <laughs> and she's like, I thought it wasn't, I thought it wasn't that serious. I thought it wasn't that serious. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and she's like, I'll go to the bar with you. I'll buy you a drink. Do you want a drink? And I'm like, no, I don't want to drink anymore. I can't drink anymore. And she's like, then what the fuck? are you? Are you an alcoholic or not? Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have hospice nurse Julie. Nurse Julie McFadden grew up in a normal 80s childhood, but obsessive thoughts plagued her from a young age. The people around her constantly asked, why can't you relax? And she immediately internalized the idea that there was something wrong with her. At 13, she found that alcohol made the thoughts go away. It was the first Tool to manage the obsessive compulsive anxiety. She knew how to keep things together as long as alcohol was involved. In college, she kept the facade going even when she'd evolved to a daily heroin user. As things got darker and darker, she told herself she wasn't any worse off than anyone else. But in the back of her mind, she knew there was something very wrong. She was able to get off heroin and told herself that that was the solution. She went through nursing school and began her career without stopping the drinking or drug use. Somehow, she always managed to keep the wheels from falling off. Then things became more and more problematic, and she felt like she needed to change. She moved to California with a vow to change her life, but attempt after attempt failed until she finally found lasting recovery. Today, Julie works in hospice care and has a successful TikTok channel, Hospice Nurse Julie, with over a million followers. This episode is so fun and should be shared widely. Any healthcare workers or nurses that you know, hopefully this spreads the message that there are all types of problematic drinking and no matter what happens, you too can get the help. Julie's story is funny, it's compelling, and her career now is such a blessing to the world along with her recovery. So I hope you check out her channel. She teaches about death and dying as a hospice nurse and it is truly educational and spiritual and beautiful. Certainly not something I thought I would find when talking about hospice care. So without further ado, I give you Nurse Julie McFadden. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Julie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to finally get to talk to you. Yes, likewise. Likewise, the famous nurse Julie from TikTok. We have her in our presence. Very exciting. Julie, how long have you been sober? I've been sober for a little over seven years. I'll have eight years a day at a time, February 4th. So in a few a couple months, yeah. Will you take us through a little bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like, if you had any traumas or notable things that happened there? Yeah. So I grew up in a rural part of Pennsylvania, Erie, Pennsylvania. I would say my childhood was pretty idyllic. I had like two brothers and sisters. I was the youngest. My family was very loving. I had many cousins and aunts and uncles and like very like 1980s, you know, like just outside running around barefoot and like playing. The only thing I can like when I think about me being a child, I was really, really anxious and probably a little obsessive compulsive without like knowing that that's what that was. You know, even as like a little, little girl, five, six years old, I remember it mostly starting once I started like preschool and kindergarten and first grade, where I would be really obsessively worried about if I was going to get enough sleep. 
So like weird things like getting enough sleep, like someone must have told me I was supposed to get eight hours. I can remember being a really little girl and counting down the time. Like if I went to bed at eight o'clock and got up at this time, is that enough sleep? And what if I can't fall asleep? And I was, I'm telling you this because I was really, really plagued by that for like most of my childhood. I could not relax. I was very, I would be like sick to my stomach leaving school thinking about like, how's the night going to go? And am I going to get everything done? I need to get done and go to sleep on time. So I get enough sleep. And of course my parents who are loving and caring as best as they can be, didn't understand what was happening, tried to support me, but something about that really shaped who I was as an adult. And really that obsessive stuff did not stop. And I also called it homesickness. So a lot of it had to do with like being away from home as well. I would feel homesick. Really, I think it was like I was having panic attacks, but I didn't know. I was like super little, so I didn't know what that was. So my parents were like, oh, you were just homesick because I'd have to come home from friends' houses a lot. I couldn't like travel or do things because I would get homesick. That really shaped who I was all through grade school and then into high school. And it only stopped in high school because around 14, you start experimenting with, well, at least I did. Around 13, I started experimenting with alcohol. And I realized when I drank, it would go away. That's the first way of me managing how I was feeling. And and it really was beneficial for a long time. It helped me not have that obsessive, compulsive anxiety that I was so used to growing up as a little girl, for whatever reason. One of the ways that I describe addiction for people who, you know, like, what is it? What's happening is like a combination of OCD and free-floating anxiety and that they just latch on to things and then it's OCD with that thing. And alcohol, you know, basically exactly what you describe. where as a little kid, we don't know why we're having anxiety about the things we're having. And of course, our parents are telling us it's going to be okay. You know, you're overreacting. You're... Ashley, you're wound so tight. That was one I heard. What's really going on is we have this underlying mental health struggle going on that's developing. And we find that alcohol works really well for that until it doesn't. Yes, exactly. My parents, like that's what I mean by like, my parents did the best they could, but the kind of like internal messaging that I received was something is wrong with me. Innately, something is wrong with me. And I didn't know how to relax. Like my, the, it was just like, I couldn't relax. You can never relax. Just relax. <laughs> right? I'd be like, yeah, I would love to. Please, can someone help me relax? <laughs> and then, you know, you turn into a teenager. And of course, like I didn't realize at 13 when I like drank for the first time and like felt that release. I wasn't like, you know, it's all in hindsight. But like in hindsight, looking back, I can see why I looked for that so often because I finally could relax. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. What did it look like from there? You know, was it one of those things where it became, you know, an everyday thing quickly or how did your addiction progress? I think it was, I mean, one genetically, just on a side note, genetically, neither one of my parents I'd say would call themselves alcoholics or addicts to a point. But like I grew up with like several aunts and uncles, all alcoholics. That word was like tossed around a lot. And I heard it a lot growing up. You know, my grandpa was an alcoholic. My grandma was an alcoholic. My grandpa died of alcoholism. My uncles don't drink because they're alcoholic. So this word alcoholic was talked about a lot, but it wasn't talked about. Nothing in recovery was talked about. It was just like my idea of what an alcoholic was was shaped at a young age as well. Like my grandpa who had nine kids and like lost the farm and was like abusive. Like that's what alcoholics are. I was the youngest of three. So both my brother and sister were older and very cool in my mind. And they were drinking and stuff as well. And I knew that just because I could like hear them talking to their friends and I knew what they were doing. So when I started as a young girl, just being fun and like stealing beers and stealing vodka from our parents and stuff, that's how it started. But it quickly progressed all through high school into just this like party theme. I was very interested in like being cool, being the life of the party, wanting to be where the older kids were, wanting to know what was happening. I had no fear. I'm talking about someone who was like so fearful, right? I was so scared (laughs) as a little girl about everything. And then I turned into this like wild child who would like do anything, try anything, go anywhere with alcohol. Bro, It was like, if I could drink, 
I could do anything is what I felt like. I could sleep anywhere. I could ride in the car with anyone. And I had never was scared about talking to older guys. And then that's all I cared about. Back then, I wouldn't have said the only thing I care about is alcohol and drugs. I would have said the only thing I care about is being cool and doing what everyone's doing and being where all the cool people are and like living my life. This is what I like. I'm a party girl. Like I really lived on that. Like I, my nickname was party girl. Like I liked that. I wanted to be like known as the girl who could like funnel a beer at like 14. At the time, it just felt like I'm a party girl. This is my identity. This is what I identify with. And this is the only thing that matters. Looking back, it's very clear to me that I was using drugs and alcohol to be who I needed to be to like live in the world and be okay. That was not clear at the time, but that is definitely what it was like. And I was more of like a weekend warrior kind of girl. Like I definitely still did my stuff, but like the only thing that mattered on the weekends was what's everyone doing? Where's the party at? And how do I get there? It sounds like it went on like this for a long time. Like you were able to be somewhat functional. When did the idea start to pop into your head? Okay, so maybe, just maybe there's something going on here. I always knew that there was something going on. Even when I was in high school, I always knew there was something going on. Like always, I never was not functioning. I was always functioning, even in college. So I'd say like the craziest time when I would be like the more classic alcoholic drug addict when people would think, I was still going to school. I was still doing the things I needed to do. And I was an active heroin user daily. I was dope sick and I still was like doing shit I needed to do, right? So like even then I was, and I still had a job. I still was working. Like, I don't know how I did it, (laughs) honestly. So, and I think that's how I kept the facade up. It was like... I could still do all these things and a daily heroin user. I kind of made my life so it was like everyone around me was doing this too. Everyone. Everyone was actively using drugs, actively and college was like my worst, I guess, when I when I knew for sure I was an addict because I was getting dope sick if I didn't <laughs> snort heroin every day. I never shot anything, but I was I was snorting things daily. And I would get dope sick if I wasn't. I was going to like creepier and creepier places to like get the things I needed to get. And like my friends who were doing it with me were you like, this is just college. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I was like, this is what everyone's doing. It's just college. And then even my college friends were like, girl, <laughs> because one time I had a friend, one of my very best friends who was also doing the same thing as I was doing as far as drugs and alcohol related, but I didn't have a pill to snort that day. And she did. And she was just sort of sitting on hers because somehow she could. And I asked her if I could have it. And she said, no. And then I went to go steal it. And she caught me and was like, what the fuck? What are you doing? And I, and I like, that's when, I mean, of course, like I kind of knew there was always issues. Cause like I was functional enough to know that normal people didn't snort heroin or pills every day to function. But once I was caught and where I was going to steal something from my best friend, because like, I couldn't not have it. And she was like, girl, this is, you're going too far. Like, this is too much. So even my friends who were like doing the same thing I were doing, was doing, started being like, this is not okay. Like you, you are having problems here. And I did kind of have an intervention where I was able to, on my own, stop doing pills because pills were like the big thing at the time. My, my big problem, I thought. And I did that by drinking more. I remember finding gin for the first time, gin as like a 21 year old and realizing that if I drank enough gin, it felt the same as if I just blew a whole oxy. And I was like, okay, this is how I'll get off of this stuff. I'll drink gin to get off of this really hard stuff. But I actually did stop doing hard drugs. I didn't stop doing cocaine or anything. But like the one thing that I was like really hooked on that really had its like claws in me was that. And once I stopped doing that, I was like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I can still drink. I can still do Coke every weekend because Coke was just to keep me drinking more. I never really craved Coke, which is true. I never really did Uh, because I was always a downers girl. I'm already kind of sped up. I don't need cocaine. I'm already fucking wound up. So then once I quit drugs, I use like quotations because like I was still doing tons of drugs quit a drug that I thought was the problem. I rode that pony till the, whatever, the saddle <laughs> came off. I'm making it my own thing now. And like, I lived my whole life like that. I went to nursing school like that. I was a functioning nurse. I just met the friends I needed to meet. So how did that work? 
I don't know. Like in nursing school, like in nursing school, I know nursing school is gnarly. And then like being a nurse, is it other people are like nurses are heavy drinkers? Like what did it look like for you also in terms of other nurses who are listening who may be like, well, you know. Yeah. I mean, what it looked like was I could keep the wheels on. Like I would make it to class. I, it was my second degree. So I had my first degree in psychology, by the way. And I used to work in a mental health hospital as a behavioral tech. And I would snort Coke and pills in the bathroom and then go run groups, go run groups. Yes. And they were great groups. And they were great groups, right? It's like, oh my God. Like, yeah. So just so you know, I mean, that was like the kind of life I was living. So like, yeah, I was doing it, but like, I don't know if I was doing it well. (laughs) And then I went to nursing school and nursing school was really intense. If I wasn't drinking, so I was never really a daily drinker until the very end, but it was like, what would keep me going is like the fact that I knew I could eventually drink, I guess. And because I didn't think I was an alcoholic, I really didn't. I didn't actually think I was an alcoholic. I really thought I was like a normal human being who liked to drink. And I always knew there was a problem in the sense of, I didn't want to be that girl. I didn't want to be the girl that like loved to drink so much. And my only hobby was going out. I didn't want to be her. So that was a problem in my head. I always thought one day I will want to do something else besides heavily drink. <laughs> no, that day, that day never came. I just kept wanting to drink more and more. In nursing school, it was like, if I wasn't drinking, I was taking Xanax because that would help me relax. Or I would drink at night enough to relax so I can go to sleep. So I would still get my shit done because not only was I like my alcoholism manifests in many ways. And one of those ways is overachieving. I'm never enough nothing's ever enough. I have to prove to everybody that I'm enough. So how else am I going to do that? I'm going to be a huge striver and so much so that like, I'll put aside everything I've ever felt or needed to make sure that I did the thing I said I would do. So you would love me. (laughs) I also had that thing driving me while I was doing that. But then on the weekends, it was like, and I was peeing the bed everywhere I went. It was like a joke. You know, I was, I was peeing the bed everywhere. I was blacking out all the time. I was a total mess. It was funny. It was funny to me. Like it wasn't a problem. I was still in nursing school. I was still getting my shit done. I was getting A's, but I would still end up, you know, in random guy's house, like naked and afraid. <laughs> like, oh my God. I've never heard it put that way. I literally remember like calling my friend at like 630 in the morning at a guy's house who I knew, I, I knew where I was at. He was like an ex-boyfriend or something, but I was like, so-and-so is not here. I'm naked. My clothes are soaking wet. The bed's soaking wet. It's off of the bed frame. Their sheets are torn off. Can you please come pick me up? <laughs> like, I don't know what happened, but... I got to get out of here. It's like a blackout escape room, right? You wake up from the blackout and it's like, okay, here are the clues. It's you, you, and your alcoholism. You're stuck in a room and you have to find the clues to get out. Like, do you still have your phone? Do you have your wallet? Look at your face. Are your teeth there? Because I've definitely woken up and my teeth weren't there. They were smashed out because I apparently face planted on cobblestone. I remember taking a picture of my teeth and my face because I was like so drunk. I was like, you know, you couldn't like think through to like just look in the mirror. I was like, I didn't know what was happening. And I took a picture and I sent it to my sister and I said, how bad is it? And she called me and was like, because she was in California at the time and I was on the East Coast. So it was late. It was earlier for her. And she was like, can you just go to sleep? And I remember being like, yep. And she was like, go to sleep and deal with this in the morning. And I was like, okay, clunk and like hung up the phone, went went right to bed. And then I fixed it that morning and I thought it was hilarious. I mean, it looked a lot like that, but it was like, and then I'd still get up and like go to work on Monday. I do think that nursing is an incredibly intense, you know, profession nursing school is incredibly intense. Being an actual nurse is incredibly intense. It seems like nurses who are drinking a lot as coping find the other nurses who are drinking a lot as coping. And that that's kind of part of the culture is there's so much trauma that it's almost easier, quote, air quotes, easier to drink and just move through it because it's compounding trauma. I couldn't agree more. Like 100%, especially when I was working in the ICU. I never went to the ICU. I never worked hungover. 
which is amazing. Like, that's what I mean. Like I still like respected what I did and I was afraid. It was too much for me to be there hungover. Could not have done it. Like I've definitely had, uh, and again, like I'm not saying everyone I know, I still have very close friends who are not sober and they're awesome and amazing and I love them. And they've gone to work a couple of times hungover. I just knew I couldn't do it. If I was working the next day, I would not drink, but I wouldn't go out. I mean, that's that's the thing is like, I was either like drinking and going out and doing what I want to do and like drinking how I want to drink or isolating. There was like no in between. I wasn't like kind of going out. Like, no, if I can't go out and like get fucking blackout, I'm not going out at all. So when I was working, I was working. That was it. But the second I was off, like, and I knew I wasn't coming back, it was on because I was either drinking for relief or like dead inside because I had shut it off because it's so hard. It's so hard, especially for me in the ICU, like to hurry up and especially with my personality. It was like constant hurry, just constant rush, a constant rush to do shit. And I don't know how I lasted as long as I did because with my personality, like that's not good. (laughs) I hate that feeling of being rushed. I'm already like that anyway. When Even when there's not things to rush around for, I'm already wound up and like ready to go. I would think that would match your personality because you're already in a rush. That's interesting that it didn't go well. No, it was like, it would like make it worse and worse and worse because you couldn't do it all. But like me wanting to be able to do it all and the the exact time it should be done, like it kind of fed that beast in a good way, but also like it made it worse because most days you can't actually do it the way you think it should be done because there's just not the time and shit happens. And you have to be able to easily and flexibly change route, change course. I'm rigid as fuck. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like I'm like black and white rigid as hell. Like I'm not flexible. I mean, I'm learning. I've learned in sobriety how to be that way a little easier, but like, I think that's why I loved the release of alcohol. (laughs) It could allow me to like, just relax. Why do you think nurses in particular are the receiving end of so much trauma in these high intensity healthcare situations? You see more nurses take on more struggles than a lot of the other physicians. And there's just, it seems like the nurses in particular are absorbing so much of this. Why do you think that is? So it's hard for me to say, I really wouldn't say that the nurses, I think everyone that's on that unit at least in my experience, you know, the CNAs, the respiratory therapists, the nurses, the doctors, we're all kind of in it together, I think. The nurses are kind of taking the brunt of the work and really with the patient, those 12 hours that you're there. So that could be, you feel almost like the most responsibility or something because you're the one who's really there. You're the one who's really having to explain everything, watch everything. So for me, the things that really stick out is the suffering. There's immense suffering that goes on and you have to not totally acknowledge it or you will crumble and die is what it feels like. Like you can't go there. You can't go to, I couldn't imagine been like, thank God I was a hospice nurse during COVID. Like I could not have imagined what the nurses went through during COVID. The trauma of how much suffering was going on and how many people were dying right before their eyes alone. And they had to be the last ones to be there with them while they were taking their last breath, while they were probably saying shit like help me and insane stuff or having let their families FaceTime them while they take their last breath, like the shit like that. And then you have to move on and go to your next patient. Like you cannot sit in that. You cannot because you have to detach or you can't do your job, but you don't actually ever fully detach is the thing is like, you think you're detached. You think it doesn't matter. You think it doesn't affect you. That's what I mean. Like when I was an ICU nurse, I had so much compassion fatigue and detachment because I had to, (laughs) because you have to keep moving. You have to go into work the next day and still be a nurse for different patients. You feel like you're kind of dead inside and you can make jokes about it. And like, and you're super desensitized. You totally are. But at the end of the day, like it leaks out, at least for me, it leaks out some ways. It's affecting you somehow, whether we care to admit that or not. What do you think the healthier healthcare workers or nurses are doing in order to process that amount of trauma on a daily basis? Have you seen it? What does that look like? Well, for me, I don't think... Okay, so this is just me, right? It's almost impossible to do it unless 
you are working for a unionized hospital that respects their nurses and gives them a break, right? So you get like 15 minute breaks, two 15 minute breaks, a 30, a 30 minute or an hour lunch where there's an actual nurse covering for you. So you can take breaks. You have to work for an institution, which there are very few and far between that really respect their healthcare workers and really give them the breaks and the quality of a shit that they deserve. And I see the difference because I've worked for unionized hospitals and I've worked for non and the non is there's no way you can respect yourself, not have compassion fatigue, still take care of yourself. Like there's, it's impossible. You can't do it because the The hospital doesn't allow you to do that. And if you did, you'd probably be fired because you would insist on, you have to have really good boundaries. You would insist on taking the full breaks that you actually deserve to get away, breathe, take time for yourself and just take a break. You need to, and you need to be able to fully shut down and take enough breaks throughout the week, right? Like not working a million hours. For me, that's the only way I could do it is by really having super strong boundaries with the people I work for and, and my patients trusting that when I leave, I fully trust that other nurses can do just as good of a job as I can do. And that like the only way I can be a really good nurse is if I truly care for myself first. And I really do that. But I do think you'll get a lot of heat. You will be called not a team player because I'm not staying later. I refuse. I will refuse to do things because I fucking matter. And really what it takes is some balls to do it anyway. And that's what I do. And then people start following suit because I'm sticking to my freaking grounds. I know I'm a good ass nurse. I know what's right. And I'm sorry we've all been brainwashed by our leadership that like we should self-sacrifice. No, sorry, I'm not. Oh my God, I could go on and on and on. But you did, and I think it's important to mention that you did self-sacrifice. You did go that route. You did that for many, many years and it got you in a really dark place. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I've learned, I learned to do it because of what I've been through. Right. So you had to make a life or death decision, right? And we should, we'll get into that, like what that looked like getting sober, but you had to make a life or death decision because you weren't going to long-term be a nurse at all if you were drinking yourself to death. So there's that. People are not going to put you first if you don't put you first. It just isn't the way that the world works. Unfortunately, I wished it were because it would be easier for all of us to implement our boundaries. But you, you know, I think it's important to note, you did put them first. You did try all of that. And the trajectory for it was, you know, drunk and dead. What did it look like to finally at 33 say, I, you know, because you were so functional and you were achieving and all of your needs were being met, right? You were numbing out, you were achieving, you were still had your job, you could still show everyone, you were still the fun, all these things, your needs were getting met. So when did alcohol really turn on you? Yeah. So I um, moved to California as a geographical, like my life was kind of falling apart in Baltimore, Maryland, not really because of alcohol or maybe it was, I don't know, but like my relationship wasn't working. Anyway, I moved to California and I was going to like change, right? I was purposely not going to, I remember thinking, I can't keep drinking like this. I need to have like, I need to do something else. When I moved to California, I'm living with my sister. She doesn't really drink. I'm not going to make other nursing friends that drink. Like I'm going to change. I'm going to be different. How old were you? I was 29. So I still had three more years, <laughs> which I'll get to because it got, because it got weird. Right. Cause that's when it, I didn't have these party friends. By the way, I love my party friends. I really want to say that because they're still my, I, I have a lot of friends who are sober who say like they don't hang out with people they used to be with, but I still do. They're my closest friends and you know, they grew out of it and I never did. I never did. Anyway. So. I wasn't going to party. I wasn't going to find party friends. I was going to do this different thing. I got a different type of job. I started becoming a hospice nurse. And what I found was now hospice nursing, you can go to work hungover. I talk about never being hungover until I was like not an ICU nurse. And then I was like, I'm driving in my car. No one knows I'm hungover. I'm going in the patient's house, you know, talking a little bit, leaving. Like I can be hungover for this sweet. Now I'm drinking during the week. Now I'm drinking weekdays. Alone? Alone. Yes. Alone. Cause I wasn't going to make friends that were drinking. So that's okay. Now I'm going to just drink casually at my house. I'm just going to drink wine. And then one bottle wasn't enough. And then I would drink two bottles a night. And then I would be embarrassed that I drank two bottles. Then I started hiding bottles, like doing all the things I hear people talk about who like had a problem. I was like, and I had one day when I was so hungover at work, 
that I was driving to, to a patient's house and I was so hungover and I couldn't pull over because I was like kind of not on a highway, but on a busy road where like I couldn't pull over. So I ended up throwing up, just full throw up in my car. No bag, nothing, just vomiting everywhere. Couldn't do anything about it because I was driving. And then getting to my patient's house and being like, what the fuck? And I had already called out that week. Like I was like calling out all the time. Like it was just a mess. So I just put on chapstick and like walked into this house. Like I didn't just vomit everywhere. Like with the vomit on you? No, because I like threw up. It was like all over my car, which is, which is the gross part. And then I went to a patient's house and in acted like a normal person, kind of, probably not. Like threw up at other patients' houses, like in their like it was just one of those things where I was like, what the fuck am I doing? It just got weirder and weirder. Now I'm I'm hiding alcohol from my sister. I didn't want her to know how much I was drinking. I couldn't work was the pro everything was the problem. But I had changed it all. I had moved to a different state. I had changed the kind of job I was saying was making me so miserable. Now I'm a different kind of nurse. I didn't make friends that drink. I had, didn't have friends at all, really. And the friends I did have, they didn't drink like me. So every time we would go to dinner or go out, I would leave because they would be nursing a drink the whole, like they'd be casually drinking and I would get one drink in me. And it's like, on, you guys are boring and you're not drinking enough. You're not drinking fast enough. And it's really, it was like burning. Like it was like, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand just kind of drinking. So I would leave my group of friends and go home and get a bottle of wine and drink like I wanted to drink. And I didn't even know I was doing that. Like it took me a while to like even understand like what I was doing. And then I remember feeling so relieved that I finally was home and I could like chug wine like I needed to. And that just happened over and over and over again until I was in an acting school too. So I was doing all these hobbies too. And like still nothing was like sticking and I wasn't like doing the hobbies as good as I wanted to because I kept drinking at night and I wasn't doing the writing I wanted to and like all these different things. So I was in this acting school and I confessed to this acting group that I thought I had a drinking problem. And the teacher was like, do you think you're an alcoholic? And I was like, no. I'm not an alcoholic. I just drink too much. It's getting in the way of like my life. I want to have other hobbies. You know, I'm, I'm 33. I'm too old. Like I'm not an alcoholic. I know what an alcoholic is. I'm not that. It's just when I drink, I can't stop. There's like something that happens in me that when I drink, like something switches and I can't stop. And my teacher was like, honey, that's an alcoholic. That's, you don't need to like lose everything to like be an alcoholic. If you drink and something changes in you chemically and you can't stop, that's what alcoholism is. And I remember for the first time, like a light kind of going on and being like, it is, but still not really fully embracing it. And then, so I stopped drinking because I had told these people in this group that I saw twice a week that I wasn't going to drink anymore. You know, I wasn't saying I was an alcoholic, but I was like, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to do all these things. I'm not going to, I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to like write all the things I want to write. I'm going to be the best performer. I'm going to be the best nurse, all this stuff. And for 11 months, wow, I did not drink. Wow. 11 months. Holy shit. 11 months. I got no help. I did not drink. And that is when I, that is the worst possible. That is when I hit my bottom. I had never been so sick in my life. I have never felt pain and agony like I did in those 11 months. I have never been truly suicidal until those 11 months where I was like, this is it. I would rather die. I would rather die. I cannot not drink because the devastating part was I did the thing. I did it. I did the thing. I stopped. I stopped drinking after all these years. I never thought I could not drink and nothing changed except I got worse. The first week I remember waking up every single night with the drinking dream and craving cheesecake at 7am and I was not a sweets girl. So it was like super weird. I would have insane alcohol cravings, like where I felt like I could tear my skin off because I wanted to chug. I remember thinking I want to chug warm vodka more than I ever have in my life. Cause all I want to do is feel that burn. I want to feel it. And I remember thinking like, that's weird. <laughs> why am I feeling like, why am I feeling like this? That's so weird. I didn't know how much I needed alcohol. And then just like slowly over those months, I was like more isolating, more isolating. I didn't do any of the things. I got like sicker and sicker and sicker, way more anxious, couldn't leave the house. Just so unbelievably sick in my mind. Finally, there was a jumping off point where I was like, well, I guess I'm going to start drinking again. 
I'm either going to start drinking again or I'm going to die because I can't live like this. There's no way I can fucking live like this. And it still never dawned on me like, maybe you need help. I actually was like, I think I should die. That's really what I thought. I was like, I think I should just die. There's no other solution. I knew it was like drinking again, like was the, was the downfall. Like you can't fucking drink again. You definitely can't be drinking. But then to not be drinking was so much worse that it was like, what the fuck? is really wrong with me. And then I was in the grocery store and a girl that I had done improv with that I didn't even know her name, but I recognized her. She knew my name and she was like, Julie, what's going on? How are you? Blah, 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 blah. We should go. I'm like, we should, we should do something. That's what she's saying. We should do something. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Cause I can't do anything. Cause I'm like dying inside. I went on a hike with her that weekend. And for some reason I like poured my heart out to her and like told her everything that was going on. And she was like, girl, you sound like an alcoholic. And even then I, I was like, no, I'm not an alcoholic. And she was like, no, my mom's an alcoholic. She's been in AA for years. I've been an Al-Anon for years. You are a dry alcoholic. You are dry. You need AA. You need to get help. And even though I didn't believe her and I was like actually totally offended and I was like, this bitch who doesn't know me at all, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I really didn't want to get help. Like AA was like, yeah, fucking right. <laughs> the worst news. But... I was so desperate. And this girl was like, I'll take you to your first meeting. Like true, like true Al-Anon. Yeah. Right. And she did. She took me to my first meeting. Nothing happened. I was scared shitless. I was a big meeting. I just like sat in the back, like didn't say a word, didn't talk to anyone, didn't even hear anything. I didn't listen to anyone. Like I didn't do anything, but something about that opened the window to the next day where for some reason I was willing by myself. I looked up a meeting and there was a meeting like three blocks from my house. And I can remember what I was wearing. I remember how it felt. It was cold outside. I was almost to a year sober, dry without getting any help. And I had my hands in my pockets, my head down. And I was like, so fucking scared. And I went to this meeting and it was a smaller meeting. We were going to share or something. And I remember my hand was like flying up and like hysterically crying. I could cry right now thinking about it because I was just like hysterical. Just, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm not an alcoholic. Again, I'm not an alcoholic, but I'm just so, I haven't been drinking and I'm so miserable. I'm so scared. I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm going to die. I'm so scared. I don't know what's wrong with me. I just need help. Blah, 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 blah. And of course, like everyone there like laughed. Cause they knew exactly what was wrong with me. They were like, you're in the fucking right spot. You're an alcoholic, you idiot. <laughs> they didn't say that, but they were just like, uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, like, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. You ask for help in an AA meeting and you share, honestly, people are going to help you afterwards. Like everyone came up to me and was like, you sound just like me. I was just like this. It's okay. Like you don't have to admit anything. Just go to your next meeting. Here's our numbers, uh, whatever. Like there's a women's meeting on Saturday. Meet me there. Yada, yada, yada. And I went to the the next meeting. And then I got my spot. I got my first sponsor who was a hard ass and really took this serious. And I was not taking it serious because I was like, still not convinced I was an alcoholic, but she helped me so much because even though I didn't think it was as serious as she was making it, like she was being like to drink is to die. And I was like, that's not, that's not how it is for me. I could drink tomorrow and I'd be okay. And then she's like, then why don't you, why aren't you drinking then? And then of course I'm like crying. I'm like, I might die. And she's like, I thought it wasn't, I thought it wasn't that serious. I thought I wasn't that serious. I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, I'll go to the bar with you. I'll buy you a drink. Do you want a drink? And I'm like, no, I don't want to drink anymore. I can't drink anymore. And she's like, then what the fuck are you? Are you an alcoholic or not? It just really helped. It made it really clear to me. And I remember reading about being happy, joyous, and free and being like, hysterical. That's all I ever wanted was to be happy, joyous, and free. And my first sponsor in the very beginning, she was like, I guarantee you, you can be happy, joyous, and free. You can get the promises that the big book says. If you do every single thing that I say, you have to do every single thing I say. I guarantee you it will work. And I was just so desperate. I was like sobbing in her car. I'm like, I'll do anything. Because I was so fucking out of my mind. And all I've ever wanted was freedom. The feeling of freedom. Like that alcohol gave me. So I just started doing everything she said. I went to, so I went to like about four meetings a week. I had commitments. I had to call three different women in the program every day, not including her. And then I had to call her. And again, this is not like what everyone had to do, right? But doing those things, even though they felt very much like, what the fuck? This is insane. But through that, I would feel relief. I would get relief like I was drinking a bottle of wine. Like I had to go to meetings. I had to share honestly. And every time I would do that, I would connect with other people and I would get that relief. I would walk into meetings, wound up and feeling like I wanted to drink. And I would leave there 
ah, like I could breathe again. Like I just drank a bottle of wine. Like I got that relief. I needed the, the heaviness off my chest. And then of course the steps help. And then I got a new sponsor because this first sponsor was like, I eventually kind of didn't need the... <laughs> the aggressiveness, right? Because I wanted to be there eventually. And I was calling myself an alcoholic and I was like in it, you know, like once it started working, I was like, I'm in, like, I don't care if this is not right or not. Like this is making me feel better and giving me everything I've ever wanted. And I'm in. So then I got a different sponsor and worked the steps with her. And now, you know, it's just a daily reprieve. It's like that first couple years, Cause I was so, I was dry for 11 months. So like, I didn't even, I counted that time as sober time, but like, I was like a newcomer coming in, you know, my first birthday, I was like totally new. So that first couple of years was just like really understanding alcoholism and really understanding what I was like working with and how to use AA in my everyday life to be happy, joyous, and free, and to really have that freedom that I've always been craving. And AA on a daily basis now is like, that's like my life. That's my life. It's one of my greatest gifts. I'm like forever grateful that I got sober and I found AA. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hey, everybody, just want to jump in here and let you know about Lion Rock Recovery's specialized program for nurses who are struggling with alcohol use or substance use disorder or are just sober curious. We currently have a specialized program that works with nurses trauma, nurses scheduling and even the importance of anonymity. For more information, go to lionrockrecovery.com, check out programs, specialized recovery programs, and there you will find our nurses program. You can also go to lionrockrecovery.com and chat with us or call us at 800-258-6550 to find out more. I love that you put 11 months together and you wanted to die because particularly in the storytelling format of talking to people about alcoholism, it gives this reminder to me and also this really clear illustration that alcohol is a symptom of the problem. And until it is arrested, until it stops, you can't actually work on the problem, right? So that's where the stopping drinking comes into play is that you, in order to do the work, you have to stop drinking. However, if you stop drinking and you don't do the work, you just took the medicine away. Things can get worse. And what people often, when I talk to parents or when I talk to people about their loved one, they say, well, I just want them to stop drinking. And I'm like, are you offering them anything? Are you offering them services, resources, anything in replace of that thing? Well, no. Then how can you take that from them? Because there's just a lack of understanding. We can get worse. We can want to die in sobriety. And sobriety and recovery are an active participation in getting better. It's in the problem, the ism, the I, self, me is all in our minds. It's a mental health struggle and you can't outrun that. Right. And the third step prayer where it says, relieve me of the bondage of self. That is like all I ever wanted was like to get relief from me, (laughs) from my mind, from my head. And like if alcohol and drugs can't do it anymore because eventually it stops working, unfortunately, or for, or fortunately, whatever, right? Like I need something else. Like I need something else. And for me, that something else was the program of AA and connecting to others, getting outside of myself, helping other people, sharing how I'm feeling. Like one of the most profound things I remember a few weeks into really being in AA, I walked up to a meeting and someone asked me how I was. And I go, Oh, I'm okay. I'm fine. I didn't even think about it. I go, Yeah, I'm good. How are you? And they go, Oh, I'm kind of depressed and anxious today. I don't know. It's just been like a rough week. I just feel like really anxious. I'm glad I'm here. And I was like, My jaw was on the floor. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I feel like shit. But I didn't say that to you. I just said, Oh, I'm good. And I really believed it. Like I wasn't even in touch with like, what was actually happening with me. And then to have someone else like mirror and be honest and truthful, help me be like, oh (laughs) yeah, me too. I actually had a rough week. I'm like not feeling that great either. I'm really glad I'm here too. And then they like hug me and they're like, me too. You know, it's just like being able to connect with somebody in an honest way. Like, I think so few of us do that. I think in general, the world needs more community, at least for, I mean, I am so resistant after seven years of really knowing what helps me. I still don't want to do it. I still have to force myself most of the time. And I even know, you know, I think about like grief and different things that really people really struggle with. People heal and get better in community and maybe not even better in the sense of like forever get better, but in the moment, in community, in groups, in support groups. And it's just so, people are so resistant. But people's experience so often is 
related to the people that they have historically chosen to surround themselves with. They are choosing them from a very sick place. A lot of time people have a bad taste in their mouth about community or groups or any kind of support that way because of support they've either been given automatically from their families or that they've chosen. This is being chosen for you in a different way. And so you're going to get something different from it. I laugh now when I think about like the suffering that you and I describe and then the small amount that showing up for an hour takes and how painful that, <laughs> like, you, you know, we're dying. We're, you're losing your front teeth. Like the wheels are fucking coming off. And we're like an hour every day. I remember thinking like that, that's impossible. I actually didn't do it every day. I mean, I started to once it started feeling good, but like, yeah, to think about when people say like 90 and 90, which I didn't do by the way, but it's like 90 meetings in 90 days. Are you kidding me? Do nurses often reach out to you or do you find yourself talking to nurses about drinking and any of these topics in your kind of public work? Well, it's attraction rather than promotion. So I try not to ever really talk. Of course, in my in the public world where like I'm on TikTok and I'm teaching people about death and dying, I do do some videos about recovery uh, just because people always ask me like how I stay so sane or how am I this way or that way? How do I do my job? It's like I can't not talk about it. I can live my life because of I'm sober. And I have a program that I work that helps me be well inside and medication, which I only could get to being sober and being in a program. Like I never could have been able to do the things because medication, PS, medication did not work for me while I was drinking and using. Uh, and then when I was sober and working a program, it was like night and freaking day when I started medications. It was like, holy shit. This is what I've needed my whole life. You don't realize how disabled you are too. You're like, oh, is this what everyone else has experienced? Well, no wonder they're doing better than I am. Yes, I remember this whole, and I had been sober for three years working a study program. And my sponsor was the one who was like, have you thought about talking to a psychiatrist and talking about <laughs> like getting some help? And me being like, <laughs> I can't, like, no, I don't need it. I'm just going <laughs> to meditate more. She's like, girl, I talk to you every day. Just go talk to someone. And honestly, and then I got on medication and probably two weeks later, I was like, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. It was like, oh my God, I can only get there the way I got there. Right. But yeah, so that's why I so openly share publicly about what I've gone through because it's such a huge part of my life. But you know, on a daily basis, people ask for help in meetings and stuff. And of course I do. And there are some, there's definitely a nursing population there needing help. And I reach out when I can, you know, and if people want the help, I will gladly be a part of that. But I'm very big on like attraction rather than promotion. I don't go after people. I don't like push anyone to do anything. I just sort of try to live my life and hopefully people like what they see. If they want help, they can ask. How has teaching people about death and dying changed your life? It's changed my life like physically in the sense of like what I physically do on a day-to-day -day basis. Like I never imagined so many people would be interested in learning the things I have to say, not what I have to say, just like what I've learned. So it's changed my life in the sense of I can't believe so many people want to learn about it. And now I can do this somewhat as a living. And so that changed my life. And it's really given me a lot of confidence, a lot of purpose. I really, really love it. I really, really mean what I say and I love what I do. And I love what I do as a hospice nurse and I love what I do as a death and dying educator. Like I love it. So it's been really amazing. Why isn't death and dying or teaching about death and dying a horribly sad, traumatic topic? I think I had to be an ICU nurse for many years to understand that. So like I was an ICU nurse for many years. That was traumatic. I saw so much suffering. I saw so much lack of being able to talk about what was truly happening with these patients. I felt like as healthcare workers, a lot of us knew what was going on. We knew that not everyone in the ICU is going to die. Not at all, but like many people are. We as healthcare workers did a disservice at the time when I was there a lot of times by not fully in and really communicating that with families about their loved ones who were usually sedated and going to die. Or if they didn't die, they were going to die eventually because they were already there for a terminal illness that no one's really talking about. Right. And it was like, so that was traumatic. That was really hard. That felt really bad and sad to me. So to be able to do the opposite of that, and that's what I feel like the hospice is, it is like a true, true blessing and honor. It does not feel sad at all. It's like, we're all going to die. Unfortunately, that's the, that's where we're at right now. If you know you're going to, 
because of a specific disease you have and what's going on with your body, there's a really good way to do it. And there's a really good team that knows how to treat your symptoms, educate you, prepare you. Um, it's not, it's not like foolproof and it's not perfect. And like a lot of things can go wrong and like it can be sad and depressing sometimes. But for the majority of the time, people you're taking care of are super thankful, super great, not that they need to be, but they are. And it feels really good to get that immediate feedback of like, wow, you've really helped me. Wow. No one's been able to talk to me about this. I feel so much better now. Like when you're not afraid of it and you're able to talk to somebody openly and directly and really give them like a map of what it's probably going to look like, because we see this day in and day out and specific diseases look a certain way almost all the time. And when you're not afraid to like explain that and tell them all the things and how you're going to help and what to expect and what's normal, what's not, people are freaking thankful. I believe our bodies are so miraculous. And I'm totally for science. So I'm not like, oh, oh, natural. Like I believe in science and all the, everything. Do all the things you, our Western world like can give us if you want to. But it's also amazing to watch how a dying body really knows how to die and really takes care of us. It shuts down mechanisms to make you not thirsty. It shuts down mechanisms to make you not hungry. Your calcium levels go up. So you sleep all the time. Like it does all of these things naturally without doing anything to help you die well. So spiritually, that made me be like, wow, that's amazing. And to see people going through it, there's end of life visionings that happen for so many people where they see dead loved ones, dead relatives, dead pets, like coming to get them, giving them comforting messages. And you're watching this? Yeah, you watch it. You see it all the time. It's like not even a, it's like so commonplace. It's not even surprising. It's like something I try to educate my families on. So when they do start seeing it, they're not like giving their loved one medications because they're delusional or something. It's just so beautiful. End of life is truly like, I know the feeling. I get this certain feeling that feels like God or whatever you want to call it, a higher presence, something there where I just feel this overwhelming feeling of like peace and love and joy. And it's amazing. And I can feel it many different ways throughout my life. And one of the ways I feel it is watching someone die. Not that I... (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, have a good day. (laughs) See you later. When uh, as a hospice nurse, I'm not killing anyone. They're naturally dying. This is what's going to happen. I happen to be there. <laughs> Incidentally. <laughs> Incidentally, they're not dying for any reason why I'm there. I just have, but when I, when I do witnesses, people think it's so sad, right? Like, oh, it must be so sad to watch someone die. And there is sadness, obviously. It's sad because I see their loved ones feeling sad and it can be sad, but mostly because my grief is removed because I'm not the one losing my mom or someone, right? I can just feel the presence of what I would call. And of course, I'm not saying this to families because everyone believes everything different. I'm not, you know, but in my experience, I feel this feeling of what I would call a higher power or God. It's like when you watch a baby be born, how you're like, holy shit, (laughs) here's a baby and now it's crying and it wasn't here before and now it's here and like, whoa. You had that in you? Yeah, like that's wild. Like it's so hard not to be overcome with emotions watching that happen. And that is the exact feeling I have when I see someone die. It feels like that when it's not traumatic. Like I've been in events where we're giving CPR, we're doing all this shit. Doesn't feel like that. I mean, when someone's knows they're going to die, it's happening naturally. Everyone's ready for this. Yeah, yeah. Hospital. It feels like that. It feels like wow. I just witnessed a miracle because I think the first step in acceptance, like, well, how do I get to acceptance that I'm going to die? Right? Is even just acknowledging, like, not avoiding it, like acknowledging that it's actually going to happen. Saying things like, "I'm afraid. I don't want to die. I'm afraid to die." Any patients that I hear saying that, I'm always like, "That's it. You don't have to overcome that. All you have to do is say it." That there's something about the saying it that like takes the resistance out of it and makes it just a little easier and you're a little closer to this idea of acknowledging that it's going to happen. And it's so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable for them. It's so uncomfortable for their loved ones, really uncomfortable for the loved ones to hear them say that. It makes me want to cry that I get to witness people showing up for their loved one dying and being in this this super uncomfortable position of like watching them do it and having to like sit there and be witness to that and doing it anyway is like the greatest act of love that anyone can give to someone. And I don't think they'll regret it if you can just do it. I just want people to know that because I've seen the difference. There's families that refuse all of it, just everything. And it's like such a hectic, awful, traumatizing moment. And then there's families that don't. 
and they they kind of like allow it and show up anyway and it turns into this honor it's still super sad but it's like a beautiful moment that they all honored each other and it's the most beautiful thing you get to witness if you're a hospice nurse well thank you so so much for being here and my dad wanted me to tell you he's the one who found you and he's been watching you for i guess over a year now and loves your content so no way I didn't know that. That's so awesome. He's the one who found you and loves your content talking about all this stuff. So hopefully that'll rub off on all of us in our family. Can I ask your dad's name? Absolutely. Peter Loeb. Hello, Peter. Thank you. So where can people find you on TikTok? So people can find me on all social media platforms, wherever you get yours. Yeah. TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube at Hospice Nurse Julie. Hospice Nurse Julie. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for being here. So grateful. So grateful that you're speaking out as a nurse and as a woman in recovery. So thank you so much for being here. Yes. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for all you do. It's been great. Awesome. Thank you. I think I want to hang out with her. Second. I feel like we would definitely get along. I think of always a good sign is when she says, I still hang out with all my party friends. (laughs) I'm like, yeah. Because you're fun. You don't need it. You don't need it, Julie. That's the problem with my using versus Julie's using, which is her party friends might have been normal and would still want to talk to her. (laughs) And mine are either dead in jail or didn't exist in the first place. And I just thought they were there. (laughs) (laughs) But Jimmy the Talking Tree was so nice. Real cast of characters. So nice. (laughs) Just like a great listener. Like, so whatever you had to talk about, just listen. I guess like friends, I wasn't really like a friend type. Just in general. Generally, yeah, yeah. (laughs) More of a barnacle is what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, more of a parasite. (laughs) It is fun slash interesting slash relatable to talk to people whose using is so different and yet so the same. I know that that's like, wow, what a deep comment, Loeb. But like... (laughs) You know how sometimes things are different, but like they're they're also similar? Exactly. They're like, woo, (laughs) deep thoughts over here. Her drinking and using... Mine was not functional, right? She's super functional. Mine is literally not functional. Burn that shit to the ground before I'm out of high school. And she makes it to 33, you know, has a career, all this stuff. But the feelings are the same. That So many of the experiences are the same. It's just, I find it so interesting how each of the things manifest. And for her, part of her personality, the achievement piece, the achievement part of her personality, which kept her going in her alcoholism and the achievement piece of me that's, you know, that I deal with in sobriety and, you know, what that looked like and what I did with that when my using got bad, I just discarded that piece of me because it was a liability. And I think what it speaks to is that so many people want to ask me the question, what was your turning point? What made this different? This conversation is a perfect example of she needed to get sober for 11 months to get sober at she needed, like, it's different. It manifests differently depending on who you are, depending on what your mental health issues, your trauma, all these things. You know, there are some canned template things that we know work really well for these different situations. But the reality is that there's just a lot of variables and the feelings are typically the same. Like those are the things that we all relate to each other with. I have to admit, that's the first time I've heard somebody say like, my bottom was when I got sober. Like, like, wait, what? I'm so confused. What? (laughs) Yeah. I just stopped for like 11 months. It was the worst time I can possibly imagine. Like, of course it makes sense. But to just hear that out of context, you're like, what? But it just means there's nothing there's nothing between you and the mental health exactly. stuff. You're getting the full no blast. No prophylactic. Correct. No, you're just raw dog in life. Raw dog in life. Gosh, we got to make that t-shirt. We really do. My friend Mike, he texted me and said he would buy it from us if we... Yeah. That's all we said. We said one person oh, had to reach out. did we say one out. person? Oh, no wonder he's so like, Ashley, he's texted me twice about it. He's like, where's my shirt? So, okay. Well, Mike, there you go. So... Julie is very famous on TikTok, famous. She is 
hospice nurse Julie on TikTok. So definitely check her out. She has really cool content and not just her sobriety stuff, but also the stuff with regard to death and dying education. She also has a book coming out in June. So we will be on the lookout for that. And this is part of our greater nurse series where Lion Rock Recovery is offering dedicated care to nurses who are struggling and want to seek help. There are often not programs that fit the needs of nurses. There are diverse schedules that change every other week or every week, keeping their anonymity or and or helping them with the board, letting them explore and deal with the PTSD that comes along with nursing and that very specific care and being with other nurses. So I I'm excited to put out this content because I really want to draw attention to the work that nurses do and also what they give as a result of being in those situations. We need to make sure that we are providing them with lots of resources to our healthcare workers, first responders. You know, at this moment in time, we're just talking about nurses, but obviously there are a ton of people who fall into these categories. Very, very warranted, very needed to get some specific help for that community because there's a lot of folks there that are just given the stigma that they face in that industry that they're suffering very much alone. We want to we want to offer help. Well, we appreciate you listening. We're rooting for you this week as we always are. Ashley, anything you want to leave the people with this week? Please share this with any of your nurse friends or your healthcare worker friends, even if they're not personally struggling with any kind of substance use or alcohol struggles. They may have friends. They know people. They're connected. They see things. So please share this far and wide so that we can get the word out that we have a specialty program for healthcare workers, nurses, first responders. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.